Welcome to this special Tennis with an Accent podcast on the state of the sport. Uh, the U.S. Open's over, and you can trust me that Sakib and I are going to do our show on the U.S. Open part, but we have other things to look forward to later in September, some exciting new events on the tennis scene, conversations to explore how this sport can improve, and we welcome back Karen Health as our guest host to lead us in this conversation, and joining Karen today are David Fish and Mark Jeffrey. They'll be able to tell a little bit more about themselves and what they are doing, uh, but they're joining Karen today. So Karen, take it away for our new show. All right. Thank you, Matt. Um, first of all, really nice to be back because I, I realized as I was preparing for this, I really missed it. And um, it's great to be back assembled with this team. Uh, early on, for those that might have missed some of our earlier talks, we kind of assembled through the COVID impact on tennis uh, some of the challenges that were faced by pretty much everyone in the industry from players to coaches to club owners to stringers and you name it. Uh, coming out of this, there's now a group we've assembled to put together a conference called Between the White Lines. And we've been kind of quietly working on this for several months now, uh, assembled quite a team of speakers. So today we have Mark Jeffrey back as well as David Fish. So I'm gonna let you guys introduce yourselves. Mark, oh, sorry, Jeff, ah, sorry. Mark, why don't you begin? A little tongue tied, okay. Yeah, we're having fun, Harry. Yeah. I've been, I've been called a lot, lot, lot worse than that, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Not so for me though. Get some time in. Look, you guys were generous enough a few months ago when we did our first sort of um, shot across the bows of, of disrupting tennis kind of and since then we've come a long long way karen yeah if we look over our shoulders it's like wow mm -hmm. what a journey we have undertaken and mr fish here was one of the is one like karen one of the fundamental reasons why we've come such a long way in a short time so if you like i'm the originator of between the white lines uh What's more important is the tagline about building tennis postcode by postcode. And a bit like Djokovic is doing with uniting players, what we want to do is unite the private sector, the tennispreneurs globally under one roof to have a cohesive force to make massive change happen. So that's what we're about. Yeah, that's terrific, Mark. Um, and I applaud all of you on your efforts. And, and Matt, thanks for having us today. Um, I think that tennis is uh, is standing on the uh, on the on the edge of an opportunity. I think it, uh, tennis initially opened up back in the 1960s, and we took it from a very uh, outdated system of shamateurism um, that didn't allow people to earn money based on their talents. And now we've watched. Uh, over the last 40, 50 years, we watched the flowering of talent that we never expected to see before. Unfortunately, tennis has also um, been suffering at a, at a level below the professional level, where at every level of the game, um, we've seen the increased specialization of sports um, and, and the increasing costs that are associated with it. And during very flush times, um, we, we watched at every level of the game from the youngsters to the, to the entry level pros, sort of um, playing in a very expensive system, which um, uh, uh, left out of the, the process millions of people who might otherwise have loved the game, afforded the game, 
have played it locally, people from other sports, people from other socioeconomic backgrounds. And I think COVID has exposed the fault lines in, in a very, very expensive, extravagant system where players are no longer going to be willing to travel as extensively as they used to. Parents, families are not going to be able to afford it. And so I think if we, as many other companies have looked at, if we look at this not as a, as a danger to tennis, as a threat, but as an opportunity to reboot it more successfully and, and to really open it up uh, fully um, to its capacity to, to offer an experience for, for millions of people worldwide, I think we're sitting on the, on the edge of a, an opportunity. And so in the, between the white lines, we will be going into all the many efforts that the private sector have brought and understand that we can all work together to do this. And in fact, as we had with COVID, we're all going to have to work together to do this. But it's a, it's a very exciting future um, that is pushing us to actually show people a way that we can save our ways to success. And David, I, I agree with you. And you mentioned, or I think, Mark, that we were disruptors. I kind of disagree with that. I think tennis, and let me state, I love the game, the sport, the players, the movement, the beauty, the five-hour finals. I love the people, the international aspect of it, uh, just what I see in terms of camaraderie among the players, respect for each other and all of that, where I really found a lot of conflict when COVID happened and was starting to see it over the years as I followed around the tour and did some writing, is that there's some real things about the way the industry's been run. And I think the industry made itself vulnerable over the years by not innovating, by not changing, and perhaps by not being a really equitable partner um, with what I call the product, which is the players, right? To make it something that is a profession where making a living is highly viable. It's highly viable for certain people, of course, we know that. Mm -hmm. But for the vast majority, right now it's not. And what I would say, and this will be addressed in, in my presentation, if you are someone that loves tennis, but your desire to become a, a professional tennis player is rooted in a desire to make money, I'm gonna tell you right now in the current system, that is a terrible choice. We'll bring Javier on at some point, who is our numbers guy. I'm not stats girl, so I'm not going to quote anything, but the numbers don't lie. Right now, if you want to make a lot of money and that's your goal in life, doing it by playing tennis is not a good well, choice. any money. Never mind a lot. <laughs> any. Yeah, you know, and, but we know that that can change, right? We know it can change. And that's really kind of part of our charter. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I, 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 um, Karen, if you don't mind, um, uh, it seems to me that we're, we're um, placing the wrong priority on things, is that mm -hmm. as a coach, we always said, look, if your goal is to be number one in the world or a top 100, most everybody's going to be an abject failure. Right. And so the question is, what else are we doing tennis for? Why are parents investing huge sums of money and time and education to do this? Well, clearly, those of us who've been in coaching, as, as I have for 45 plus years, um, recognize that it's all about development of people. And right. that should not be exclusive to just top players. That should be for, for every level of the game. And, um, and I think we've inadvertently unintended consequences and maybe the kind of lack of innovation that you're talking about in the legacy organization that have, have sort of 
found themselves to be stewards of the game but weren't really equipped to do that um, is that uh, now we have an opportunity to do it differently and 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 develop a system that is appealing to all levels of the game and will produce world-class players so it's so it's a system that everybody benefits and some will be world-class right. very very few but but uh, at that point, then the investment that we all make, if we can make a more reasonable investment and open these opportunities to kids from an inner city, I mean, in a way, basketball or baseball or football is available, then we will have done tennis the ultimate service by by providing that kind of system. And I, and I, I go back to Starbucks. Starbucks has been successful worldwide because they created a third place. And that third place was that place between your home and your office. And what we're proposing to do is create a second path. So there's the extravagant worldwide path that leads to wonderful international friendships, but there should also be a local path that lets a 10-year-old that gets exposed to the game in Atlanta continue to play in Atlanta and lose to people better than he or she is till they're 17 or 18 and going off to college. If we do that, we will have transformed tennis worldwide. And yes, I agree with you. I was, I just want to clarify, I'm not stating anyone should go into tennis to make money, but I think that some, I, no, look, so a lot of, we yes. know there are a lot of parent coaches, right? And there are a lot of families, as you said, invest a ton of money mm. riding on the fact that their kid is going to be the meal ticket out of poverty. And, you know, yeah. it happens sometimes, obviously, you know, the Williams sisters are an amazing story, right? Yeah. But that is my point. I would, I would say to any, any, any decision you're making, if your only underlying reason is to make money, I challenge you to go back to the well and find something else because money is only going to take you but so far anyway. And yeah. you've got to have other reasons for wanting to do things because on the hard days, you know, when you get injured and you get stuck in an airport, so you miss your first round match or you know, whatever it is and things are not going well there's got to be something greater than that. And the personal development and all of those other things are absolutely um, yeah. key. Absolutely key. And we've got, as you know, nearly 40 leading, as in leaders, expert speakers covering every single aspect of the pathway in and the pathway out of tennis. Mm -hmm. From kids tennis, junior development, all the people in the clubs, high school, colleges, academies, route to the top. Um, somebody in there somewhere in the world has got a solution to the problem that most other people somewhere in the world just have the problem. So we can connect everybody together, postcode by postcode. And when I said disruptive, just, and Dave keeps, keeps talking about the opportunity was true. So let's just think that we now have hands across the ocean, a network global of tennispreneurs, not just coaches, owners of academies and clubs and everybody else. Now we should become partnerable, sponsorable, investable, because in the past, to be frank, we're not. We've got right. us doing our own thing in our own silo, great results, but impact small. So if we can have those great results, not in a silo, linked across the world, our impact is large, and now we should become partnerable, sponsorable, investable. It's a win-win for everybody, but including tennis. So what? So so 
next steps, Karen, is, and, and you've been following tennis at a number of levels and you've seen at the top level. And so, um, so the challenges we have is we have a, 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 a federation model based on the Olympic model where each country is essentially given stewardship over tennis in their national area. Right. And those organizations tend to be volunteer driven for the large mm-hmm. part. They're not like successful companies. They're sort of keeping things together. They're sort of administrative groups. And the people that are, tend to be attracted to administration tend not to be the people that are out there innovating. So when we get to the question of disruption, disruption only to the extent that, um, that when, the, when the automobile was designed, it was a disruption to the horse industry hmm. and buggies. And so, um, so that's just an evolutionary um, fact that we see. And it's, and it's uncomfortable when you, when you ask people to change, you know, who moved my cheese is a famous yep. book. <laughs> and and, Love and that so one. We, we, we sort of did, we call that the immune response um, that organizations have, because if they finally have, have a sense of power and leadership, we see, we see how hard it is to yield power these days. And unfortunately, I think a lot of these organizations look at these things as uh, they, they actually look through the wrong lens. They see things as threats instead of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, they begin to circle the wagons and say, well, we have to hang on the way we've always done it because we're in power. Mm-hmm. And, and it hasn't been effective. And it hasn't even served their needs because there's so many thousands of people that work in these organizations that are so well-intended that it's sad to see the inefficiencies yeah. of these models. And so right. what we're trying to do is propose new ways of doing things that can lead the way in the same way that um, successful companies build uh, organizations like they call them skunk works and skunk works are essentially designed to be outside of the bureaucracy so that you can develop an idea fully implement it without all the bureaucratic rules and tangles that happen. And we see this in the USTA and the ITF. And so disruptions like universal tennis ratings and independent rating that comes along is, is looked at as a threat initially. Right. But when you go back to the, the underpinnings of it, it's all a mission about taking, making tennis more affordable, fun, and accessible. And that should be hard to argue with. <laughs> it should be, yeah. but it's not. Right. It's a little bit like the body that rejects a heart transplant um, when it's going to save the person's life. You know, the immune Fish, system. You come up with so up. much good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you in your mouth. <laughs> so, and so, so that's so. So we're all intending that down the road we may be on the same side. We may be holding hands with these organizations, and, and there's no sense in just lambasting them for not doing. They're not built to do those things, yeah. and so we are built to do these things. And that's why Mark's effort and your effort are all about connecting us all, so that we can think more coherently, logically, efficiently, etc. Right. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I started out, I mean, I, you know, I, I never played college tennis, high school tennis. I played on a seventh grade team for one year and then I switched to gymnastics. So what the heck am I doing in this arena? Well, I just fell back in love with tennis. Thanks to Rafael Nadal. I am celebrating the start of the Hard play not season. To. Um, and I realized 
I have no resume. So what do I do? And I got fortunate. I had neighbors that lived here that were professional players. I'm Milagros, Milagros Sequeira and Stephen Hess. And Millie, as I like to call her, mean Millie, because she coached me for a little while, uh, introduced me to the concept of volunteering at events. So that's what I started doing. I volunteered at Carlsbad. Then I started volunteering at Indian Wells. Then I got laid off and then a whim said, you know what? I can go to Miami next week now. So I did. And I volunteered there. And I started realizing I have to build a resume. I have no industry experience. No one's going to look at me and go, why should we listen to anything this one has to say? And I got that a lot. Two questions. Did you play in college? Did you play professionally? And then people would walk away. I'm like, okay, get it. Um, but the more I did that and worked on the inside of the volunteer organizations, I started to see, and this is not an insult, this is just uh, a lens, right? A lot of the people running tennis are former players. And there's nothing wrong with that except that it's a business just like any other, right? If everybody wants to make some money, it has to be run like a business. So you need accounting and legal and finance and marketing and advertising and someone to plan and look at liability and, you know, Wimbledon had pandemic insurance. That's the liability risk management team right there that did a good job. So I started to see that the, the resumes of those making a lot of the decisions about organizationally how things would be run were not necessarily business people, and nor should they be. Because if you started playing tennis professionally, by the time you're 13, you're not even in a regular school, you're not going to college, and you don't get any real world business experience necessarily. Now, I'm not saying there's some players that are brilliant. I mean, again, Serena and Venus, Roger, you know, they've become these multi-conglomerates on their own, their own brands, which is amazing on top of everything else that they've done. but the average player, I don't think, gets that. You can't because your time is focused on the court, on hitting balls, on wearing yourself out, doing the reps at the gym, traveling all over the world. So the skill sets I saw were not necessarily the best business-minded people. Sometimes. I'm not going to say all the time. A lot of the folks I interacted with at Larry Ellison's event, the BMP Paribas Open, some very sharp people, uh, very much a military like organization, run like a tight ship, very, but very, very siloed, which was interesting. So there wasn't a lot of crossover between teams, even if you had an idea that might benefit another team, you couldn't go talk to them. It had to go up and over, which again speaks to, I think, an inefficiency, right? It creates a barrier to collaboration versus let's just share and, you know, exchange ideas. So. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, that's, that's what happens. <laughs> Pardon? Yeah. No, well, you mentioned well, it happens gymnastics. in corporate America too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. You mentioned gymnastics earlier. So, just mm -hmm. two things to show what a broad church between the white lines is. We have, <laughs> as a speaker, Valerie Condas, who was mentored by John Wooden, was head of UCLA for, I think, 29 years, mm -hmm. gymnastics, head of gymnastics for USA, mm -hmm. a TED speaker on a subject which is like winning is not just success or success is not just winning. So she's one of our keynote speakers. Mm -hmm. We also have top man from UNH UNHCR, United High Commission of Refugees, that linked up with the International Olympic Committee to form the very first refugees team. And he's speaking 
on. It's not just about football and how tennis can improve the lives of refugees and how can we integrate tennis with refugees. So all of that I find fantastic, yeah. but others might not. No, because it's just extraordinary. Oh, I love it. love it. What I found is that the greater the person, the more their reputation, the more generous they've been. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had and kind of halfway through, they've gone, this is amazing. Count me in. What is it you want me to do? Um, and these are people that, you know, mm. are international names. You go, oh, my God, you know, Emilia Sanchez. I was, we only had 24 speakers at the time. I said, oh, Emilia, now we've got 24 speakers. And, da, 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 and he went, oh, Mark, you've got 25 speakers. Oh. And, and that's exactly how I went, oh, Emilia. And then most of these speakers are speaking about a topic that is dear to them, but they've never spoken about before. So Amelia is speaking about belonging. Mm -hmm. So what about clubs and academies and forehands and how to make pros? No, no, no. I'm going to speak about belonging and I'm going to unpack a little curriculum about how you build, maintain and grow belonging. Because once you have belonging in a club or academy, they will not leave it mm -hmm. the ages of the early 30s to early 50s because they have belonging. Go, wow. No, really, I go, mm, wow. So it's all about recruitment and retention and returning of lapsed players. This is nothing to do with tennis. It's about what tennis can do. And I think Sorry, it's also I, about I authenticity. You know, authenticity, because... If you're not in something for the right reasons, you can have great marketing and all of these things, but eventually people know it. And I think to establish something like belonging, you have to have, you know, authenticity in your heart in the right place and doing the right things. People are going to, people are going to remember there's that statement, right? Not what you said, not what you did, but how you made them feel. Yeah. So how does someone feel when they're at your club? How do they yeah. feel when they interact with other people in your organization? And, you know, I think that speaks to the belonging piece very much. Yeah. And, Dave, and, Dave, how long were you at Harvard for? I was there for 44 years. Oh, that's belonging. <laughs> You're not that <laughs> I old. I was only the third Harvard coach in history till that time, uh, till, since the 1920s. And uh, so it was a privilege for me. And I watched, you know, hundreds of young men and young women come through. I wasn't coaching the women, but I watched them turn into wonderful people. And so, um, so that sort of inspired me to, as I was nearing the, the ending points of my career as a coach, I, I didn't want to stay past my welcome. Um, and, and, and yet I wanted to invest myself in something that would look at the greater good and how could we leave tennis in a better place than we found it or than it is now. And so all of us collectively are are working in that way. Um, and I think we have a chance to address a lot of issues. And uh, Karen, what you were just talking about, it reminded me that, that diversity is not a, it, it's, it's not just a concept that we throw out there. Diversity has to do with being welcoming to people. And, and Emilio mm -hmm. Sanchez is a great proponent of that because he's charming and, he, and, he, and, he, and his heart is in the right place. And he's always looking, not because he's making money, but because how can I make the sport good and, and, and pay it back for what it's done for me? And diversity is the same thing. People helped me get started. They picked me up at night to take me to training sessions. These were USTA people. They were volunteers like mm -hmm. you were. Yeah. 
and and there's there are armies of volunteers out there who are just yeah. unhappy but they don't know what to do to help change the system and so part of one of the reasons one of the concepts we're going to explore in the between the white line summit is how do we revitalize these tennis villages anywhere in the world city by city and it's a very exciting concept because essentially cities are the only kind of autonomous size group that really is responsible for itself you know our federal government can't balance the budget and they don't have to um, but if but if a city mayor doesn't balance the budget and he doesn't remove the snow on time and get the trash off the streets i don't mm -hmm. care whether he's republican or democrat he's out of office yep. there's accountability to that and so the accountability opportunity we have is to build these robust almost self-sustaining systems of local competition in ways that used to happen way before the ATP and the WTA and the ITF all sort of took hold of tennis at the high level and said, we're going to control this and make everybody chase points all over the world to do that. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's not, this is the opportunity we have to revitalize and create very robust systems city by city and really go back to the, the cultural idea that it takes a village to raise a child. Mm -hmm. And then the resources are there locally to help kids that are disadvantaged, but you'll be showing all the stakeholders a way that they can benefit by working together in a way that they don't know how to now. There's just no model like that. And everybody's mm -hmm. been chasing these points nationwide uh, and worldwide for the last 25 years. And that may be one of the undiagnosed viruses that are out there that are causing people to say, hey, this yeah. is not fun. I'm just jumping through hoops year after year. And when yeah. you finally stop or you get into college, you say, whew, God, glad that's over. <laughs> like, and, and we used to love to play. We couldn't wait to get the next tournament. And so this is a chance to rekindle the love and the joy that, that has been lost in the business of tennis. Mm -hmm. And we have a chance to do that if we work collectively and thoughtfully right. and without sort of setting up boundaries and no. immune systems, et cetera. So no. that, that's what gets me up in the, in the morning yeah. every, every day, working with people like you guys. Yeah. And I'm conscious of time. We've got about, so just about want to five minutes something to wrap. Okay. So just my last, if you like, closing statements to pick up on a few things they've said is that change is one of the hardest things to do. Niccolo Machiavelli said exactly that. Yep. Why? Because you get the real action against you of the people that do well from the current system. And you only get the lukewarm support from the people that might benefit from the new system. So change is a challenge. And even if you don't like what's going on for human beings, we get comfortable, you know, wearing the sackcloth and struggle and toil. And as bad as it is, we get comfortable in that. So actually to have a stake in the future where it might be easier, more efficient, more lovable and fun, still takes something. So that's my plea to the private sector who are the only ones that can make things change because we are the change agents. Stop doing it by yourself. Stop doing it the hard way. Come with a group of people just like you and we'll have fun and we'll make change, and we'll make social impact happen, and guess what? You'll probably make more money easier as well. So, Dave Fish set me off. 
<laughs> I always blame things on Great Fish, actually. I know I always blame them. Well done. Don't fall <laughs> off the soapbox there. That's <laughs> you built my soapbox. <laughs> As a project manager, I have a magnet I used to keep in my office just to kind of set the fun tone with my team that says, I didn't say it was your fault. I said I was going to blame you. Two different <laughs> yeah. things entirely. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 So, so David, you want to wrap with a, a oh, few gosh. closing arguments? Yeah, I, I, city by city, postcode by postcode. Yeah, I, I think that comes back to what we're doing. Um, is that is that uh, we know that opportunity is defined often by postcode. We know that the quality of schools is defined by the tax base, mm-hmm. and so there's less money going into the poor areas where they have more to do with safety. Just walking on the street, whereas I can go out and walk. We each have a responsibility, even though the lift is giant, we have a responsibility to do our part so that we're not just um, acquiescing to the problems or the inequities, because someone has to speak for the millions of players who never get a chance to be on the tennis committees Mm -hmm. anywhere. That's the silent witness that Um, sociologists often talk about is that who's going to speak for them Mm -hmm. and we're part of that voice that gets to speak for them in a way that that speaks to the well-intentioned people inside the organizations that have power that eventually do change is it 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 takes a long time to change and so rather than pointing fingers I always say you know if we could save all the energy that we spend talking about each other and criticizing, we could basically bottle that and light a city. And so that's really what our effort is. We turn this into a constructive conversation that is going to reach out and say, Hey, let's partner with these groups, but let's show what we can do by working together. So let's at least have a voice and a conversation and a podium. And that's what Mark and you all are doing. And I'm delighted to be part of that because it just, it, it, all of us together are smarter than any of us individually. And that's, that's kind of the bottom line. So we're all in this together. Right. And it's so much more fun to do things with a group of people. I mean, Isn't trying it? to battle through anything by yourself is, is just not fun. Yeah. You know, you need people to vent to, you need people to bounce ideas off of, you need input. Sometimes you need people to reel you in. Yeah. <laughs> and you a little too, to, you know, you excited to about something. Yeah, yeah, and you need people to, to call and criticize and make you sharpen right. the logic behind your your arguments. So right. so just thinking, well, I have all the answers. Well, any of us would be foolish to think we all have all the answers. But right. but as we begin to distill these the kernels of the ideas, I go back to Archimedes' lever, is that he famously right. said, if you give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum, yeah. I can lift the world. And so we're just trying to increase the length of our fulcrum here. And we get some uh, details on this conference just for people interested in either participating in it or then following it after it occurs so that people are immediately aware of what happened and how they can keep the conversation going. What a very good question. The (laughs) easiest thing is go onto Facebook, type in between the white lines and you'll get our Facebook page or do the same thing for LinkedIn and then just like or share one of the great conversations we've got going, and then you're part of the group. And the doors open Wednesday. We start our launch between the bookends 
of the Grand Slams, we launch and deliver our summit in between those little bookends. And life is what happens between those bookends. Thank you. You're my wheeler inner, by the way. <laughs> Thank you all. All right. Well, we've hit our time limit. Thank you, guys. So congratulations. <laughs> all right. Thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the day. Thank you. Wait, wait. Thank you, Who's going to win? Team Zara? Team Zara? Every, every stat, including Zebra's second serve, says team is going to win. But the only thing I would say is it's a Grand Slam final. Somebody has been, both of them, been looking forward since they were four to win a mm -hmm. Grand Slam final. So all the stats go out the window. And I think the person that has it as a normal match will win the day, even if the odds are well stacked towards team. Mm-hmm. I think the only wild card in there is whether team will be a lot stiffer on his Achilles heel. Yeah. Sometimes you, you get, you get up and you say, well, I'm great when yeah. I'm all warmed up. And then you, you wake up on Sunday and all of a sudden, Ooh, something's wrong here. Happens to me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise, yeah. otherwise I pick team hands down. I mean, yeah. just hands down. He's I so picked up. team, but I've seen, you know, I sat, in, in a courtside box seat, thanks to being a volunteer at the BNP Paribas Open, so small plug there, um, when Zverev played Rafa for the first time on center court. And I can't tell you how amazed I was at what this kid was able to do. I mean, he nearly beat him. So yeah. that the said, you know, clearly, but here's And he the, had nothing to lose. He had so. nothing to lose. He had nothing to lose, for sure. Uh, you know, for me, I think Zverev has tremendous skill as well. I just see the the frustration element to him. He's um, loose. He's yep. still he's still got that kind of loses his cool, and as soon as that happens, yep. it's an yeah. implosion. So we'll see what happens. Should be a great match. I'm hosting a watch party that starts in two hours, so I'm gonna go. Great! Oh, awesome. Well, Have thank fun. you all right. very much.